0: Welcome to Hawk Talk, and HGA Podcasts. This is episode 13, and today we are talking about the complexities of peat. I am today joined by four very special guests, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves.
1: Hi there, I'm Mike Burks. I'm the Managing Director of the Gardens Group. We've got three garden centres in Somerset and Dorset. I'm also the immediate past chairman of the Garden Centre Association. I'm on the Industry Growing Media Task Force, and I'm on the board of the Responsible Sourcing Scheme.
2: I'm Nat, um, Natalie Porter. I run a bedding plant nursery called Happy Plants in the Northwest. I'm also a co founder and president of the Young People in Horticulture Association.
3: Hi, I'm Ben Malin. I'm managing director of Godwins. Um, we're a sixth generation family business manufacturing compost. I'm also a director of the Responsible Sourcing Scheme and on the Growing Media Task Force.
4: Hello, I'm David Lydiate. I'm the Public Affairs and Policy Manager at the Horticultural Trades Association.
0: Thank you all very much for agreeing to be our guests today. So we are talking about peat. Um, so let's start with a big question: what is what is this big complex issue of peat and surrounding peat? What's going on?
1: Well, the uh, um, peat is being banned uh and uh, we've known that that would be happening for quite some time but the uh but now it is a formal ban coming into place um for use in amateur gardening by the end of this parliament um which sounds like it should be the end of 2024 um uh, and then further on uh, a ban for use completely for growers uh, of all types with a few exceptions will start cutting in in 2026 and 2030 and it's uh, all the challenges for us in getting uh, getting to grips with that and how we position ourselves uh, and get used to using completely new materials um, almost all of which are not quite as good as uh, peat were. I
3: think it's worth thinking about how we got here with peat to start with. Um, Peat has been harvested and used as a burning fuel for many centuries. And that really only changed with the Second World War and the John Innes formula and what they called soilless growing media after the war, where they used peat instead of traditional loam and sand-based composts. And then through the sixties and seventies, the industry massively expanded on the back of peat-based growing media, compost grow bags that you bought in the garden centers and DIY stores And the industry was hugely reliant on peat. But since the 1980s, we've been working on peat reduction. And the the level of reduction now is enormous compared to where we started this this exercise. And we've come an awfully long way. The important thing for us as an industry and why we've used peat is it's stable. It's consistent. It's relatively light. It's inert. And it has um, what they call good cation exchange capacity which in layman's terms means that it holds on to fertilizer that we add to it and lets it out when the plant requires it and that material being available has driven the huge expansion in horticulture we've seen particularly in the, the from the 70s onwards and th- that is why peat was important to us because it enabled the industry to expand massively and that is why those technical characteristics of peat are why it is hard for us to replace peat. We've replaced the easiest element to replace. Um, We're now onto replacing the hardest element because it has to be replaced with materials of of high quality. And that's a particular challenge for professional horticulture.
0: So if we, before we talk about what we're replacing it with, why are we being asked to reduce peat? What, What is the reasoning behind the government putting this initiative into place? It
3: initially, when peat was first became uh, under environmental pressure in the 1980s, it was owing to habitat damage. The environmental groups were pointing towards large expanses of, of open peat surface where the vegetation had been stripped, bogs were being drained, and there was a lot of focus on the, the loss of wetland peatland habitat and the loss of peat accumulating uh, vegetation on the surface the industry did a lot of work on restoration and working damaged bogs and restoring them to peat forming habitats the issue now is much more around the carbon sink peat is a a store of carbon as a peat bog grows the the surface layer be that moss peat or or sedge peat takes in carbon and accumulates it and stores it so draining peat and harvesting peat emits carbon and the reason now why this has got as far as legislative action potentially by government is because of the carbon requirements and the carbon targets but we need to look at things in the round because of course everything has a carbon footprint um, but that is the reason why peat is in the legislative focus of government at the moment
0: and compared to other industries is that significant the amount of carbon that's reduced by peat harvesting
3: the the actual level of carbon emitted by peat harvesting and peat use is a better way to put it because we're using peat that's either harvested in the uk or imported is frankly minuscule compared to many other industries it's very hard to understand on the basis of the actual carbon emissions alone why this is such a focus but it's it's the background it's the history of it and it's the long history of pressure on the industry that is the reason why we're in this position now and why we have been striving for years to reduce peat use.
0: So if we go back to what Mike said originally the the government's original ambition was was to uh, become peat free by 2030 although that that now looks like it will be the end of 2026 what impact does this ban have on the industry your businesses moving forward
2: absolutely enormous like on the industry the amount of um, certainly perennials that are imported at the moment um the changes it will make within our own business. One of the main changes, as Ben says, it will be very difficult to find something that performs in the same ways. So there's a, an entire re-education of the customer. Um, I think there's also we're on the back foot with that because of the past few years, especially through the pandemic, anything that was brown that you shredded and put in a bag could be described as peat-free compost. And there's been this demonization of peat-free compost with amateur and hobby gardeners already. Um, so anything that says "peat-free" on now, they're extremely sceptical at the offset. But even if we can produce a really, really good alternative, they're still going to need to use it differently. Um, it's just there's so many nuances to it. The weight of the material implicating the amount of um, plants that we can put on each wagon. So using more wagons, um, you know, you could go on and on and on with the intricacies of the change. Um, a big one for me is is this comment that we get a lot that we've known this was coming we've known about it for a long time, so why haven't we fixed it? Just to sort of counteract that point that gets thrown at us a lot is, we've known this as a problem for a long time, doesn't mean that the science has allowed us or the accessibility and availability of resources should have allowed us to, to fix it by now. It's not the case that the industry isn't wanting to make the change, it's just that the rate of pace of the change needs to be dictated by the science, by the availability, the scalability and the true sustainability of the alternatives, because there's a lot of wolf in sheep's clothing out there as well.
3: I think that's a really good point about the amount of work the industry's done, which I think we often don't get credit for. We've done a huge amount of work on peat reduction, and we've made a huge amount of progress. The issue now is the quality of the materials that we can source. Can we make a good High quality peat free compost. Yes. Can we get enough of the high quality raw materials needed to do that? No. And that's that's fundamentally the issue. And the 2026 target or legislative date is hugely problematic for manufacturers because we're attempting to to change both in the amateur market and the professional market on the same time scale. Because the plants that we grow, and I should have said at the start that we're not only manufacturers, we're also growers. We have a a nursery that grows hardy nursery stock. And the plants we plant in 2024 will be sold, some of them in 2026 and beyond. So we're trying to, to change the amateur and retail and amateur sector and the professional sectors simultaneously. And that's an incredibly difficult
1: thing to do. And it's incredibly risky for professional horticulture. I think the um, you know in the garden centre and also when I'm out speaking to garden clubs, uh, the you know the, the peep, going peat free is a huge issue, um, and it's um, it's it's tough enough for commercial growers to do it, but actually the amateur gardener is obviously having to to get used to learning new skills uh, in order to be successful in gardening, and that's that's one of my big worries. And I, I think both Ben and Nat have, uh, have uh, mentioned that. Um, and uh, you know, we can provide lots of training and guidance and advice and, and we've got a small nursery where we, we are peat-free so we're learning very quickly from that and can pass that on. But but the danger that I think we face is that, um, is, uh, as Nat said, there was the skepticism about the quality of materials that were available um, maybe 15, 20 years ago as peat-free alternatives Um, we've now got better uh, materials available and uh, our gardeners are being weaned off peat onto these materials but the problem we face is that with the um, with commercial growers then uh, needing those now needing those same materials um, much much earlier than was anticipated the knock-on effect is that actually amateur gardeners are then going to have lesser quality uh, products available uh, and so any any of the um, learning that they do now on the high quality materials will all have to happen again uh, on the newer materials because they're just they just won't be the same so we can train all we like but actually next year or two years time uh, unless something changes in terms of the availability of the quality materials they're going to come across similar problems that they have now, which is, you know, how, how do we, how do we use these materials? How do we feed them? How do we water them? Um, why aren't they uh, lasting from year to year in a permanent planting? Which is one of the one of the, the, the dangers, um, and the knock-on effect environmentally of that is, is huge. I mean, fundamentally, I think the more people you get gardening the more people who understand what is going on with the climate, and therefore the more people who will do want to do something about it. So we've got to keep people gardening, um, and I think medicine, that, that's one of those issues. Uh, you know, and then you get the cost issues, the cost will go up, and that impacts on those who are least able to afford it, Uh, And uh, one of the great things about gardening is that it um, it, is—it's not a uh, rich person's occupation. It can be carried out by every member of society. Whether you've got a windowsill, a balcony, a patio, uh, an allotment, or a fifteen-acre garden. you're doing the same things. And it's, it's a wonderful uh, leveler from that point of view as well. And that, I worry about that enormously.
4: I was going to make a couple of points, is from, from the outset, I should say that it is actually the industry's um, ambition to go peat-free. Uh, and, and we have, as Ben pointed out, made great strides in, in transitioning away, particularly in the last few years. So we've gone to a, a historic low of 16.8% in, in bagged growing media or compost in garden centers now. And that's going to be phased out, um, perhaps over the next eighteen months. We're, we're below fifty percent peat use for our professional tree and plant growers now, for the first time, which is which is fantastic. So we have come a long way, um, but I, I think there's a, there's a lot of challenges to, to to businesses. And on the visits I've made um, recently to HTA members, it's clear that um, number one, there's not enough peat-free alternatives out there at the scale to be able to. To grow what they need to grow, um, that's a fact. You know whether it's uh, wood fibre, coir, or even some of the mid to long term uh, alternatives, maybe maybe green waste or a sphagnum moss or or bracken, which need to be looked at as a long term view and strategy. Um, the the new d- deadline that DEFRA have set at 2026, bringing it forward four years, means that we won't get there in time. Um, for, for, for a lot of businesses and, the, and these are businesses also that I visited that have already started the peat-free journey and are continuing to conduct trials to be able to get there because of the seasonality of, of horticulture um that's not straightforward so by reducing it for four years from the 2030 de- deadline uh which different uh, suggested early on for our professional growers to 2026 that's four years worth of trials uh, gone basically um which which makes things Extremely difficult. On top of that, um, as, as Mike's just been pointing out, it's the learning as well. So, for example, learning how, uh, that uh, certain peat-free mixes need more water because the water retention isn't there, uh, need more feed and more regular feed because it doesn't hold in those those nutrients. And I know that bottom line figure, the the, the investment having to be put on there, you know, is northward north of twenty percent. Um, and moreover, when you're trialing these peat-free alternatives there's also been a loss of, you know, I've, I've been told of around 20% as well. So uh, these are lots of plants that haven't survived because they're not in in, in as good a quality uh, growing media. So huge press, pressures on horticulture businesses, professional growers to be able to, to pr- produce at the quality and quantity that we currently are, um, which I, I think, you know, it needs to be realised by those outside of the, the horticulture industry, because I think the problem we've got, and as Ben was saying about the, the background to this, is that it's become a very political issue. Um, and um, I, I think that the thought of, you know, peat bad, everything else good it, it is, is a dangerous one without understanding the intricacies and the complexities of, of going peat-free because you, if you were to rush that process, it would be deeply damaging to the horticulture industry who provide huge amounts of biodiversity, by the way, in the trees and plants that, that it produces.
1: So that thing about um, you know us committed as an industry, I think is exactly right. And if you take you know in in our the, the range that we of uh, growing media we have available for customers, we are now more than ninety five percent peat free. Uh, I think we're not unusual with that. Many uh, garden centres are uh, aiming to be peat free um, in their bag product by the end of this year, so a whole year earlier than otherwise. So I think there's commitment there but the uh, the cobos have moved, haven't they? Uh, and actually that, you know, the 2026 is just too soon. Uh, and if we're going to get there and- the yeah, main... yeah, they
3: you're absolutely right. The commitment is there from the, from the yeah. manufacturers. The commitment is there. We're not ideologically wedded to the use of peat at all. No, no. I, I, you know, we, we don't mind what we put in a bag so long as it grows. Yeah, It must do the job. It's got to work. And I was fairly comfortable with 2024 and 2030. 2024 was hard, but I gained comfort knowing that we could pull peat free, the best peat frees out of the professional sector and use them in the amateur sector, knowing that we could still use peat until 2030. The the, the issue is with 2030, 26 2024 and 2026 that the quality material simply doesn't exist and i think it's worth just saying something about what the issues are with peat free because we can make a very good peat free compost but we require 30% ish of a really quality material to replace peat and fundamentally that means coir or composted bark and coir there are supply issues. It comes from the Indian subcontinent, Sri Lanka. Um, there's a quite a long supply chain. We can get it, but there are questions about long term availability that are yet to be answered. Composted bark is very tough because nobody cuts trees down for the bark. You, we're, we're, there's a finite supply of that material. Beyond that, we're talking about wood based products, um, composted green waste and these are fine as elements in a retail mix but the issue we have is that these products are are active they're not they're not a stable product in the way that a peat-based product was these have microbes in them which are active they're activated by the manufacturing process you walk through the factory and you can see the steam coming off these products where they're hot that activation activates the microbes and they start to consume the fertilizer and What that means is we get a risk of nitrogen lockup, and we can overcome that with an increased fertilizer dose. Um, But that obviously has a cost implication and it has a management implication for the consumer growing it or the professional grower. And
2: and an environmental consideration. Well, well. I was
3: going to say that. Sorry. Absolutely. I feel in many ways that we've never been less green. We used to take peat from next to our factory and combine it with a certain amount of fertiliser and put it in a bag and send it up the road. We now take raw materials from all over the country and indeed the world and we reconstitute coir or we process wood using diesel-based machinery. Um, We then put three times as much fertiliser in which is oil-based and it frustrates me endlessly this. I'm not arguing against phasing out and stopping the use of peat, I'm just pointing out some of the the unmentioned implications
2: I think it's important to acknowledge that UK nurseries aren't like on the continent as well on on the continent a lot of nurseries are monocropped you could get one peat based uh, peat free solution one recipe that works for you and as long as the bales are consistent you know that that works across the board but we for example would have 60 different products at the moment probably 20 different genus in in several different formats and to find 60 different solutions with four years less than we thought we had is gonna be nigh on impossible. We're gonna to have to completely reprogram our infrastructure in terms of how we get substrates because we have an overhead line which distributes the same subst- substrate to each machine, which works with peat. But without peat, we're gonna to have to hand feed different machines, which is, is our problem, but worth acknowledging. I think when we talk about the benefits of- well, And, and systems,
3: the water the machine,
2: water is gonna be horrendous. And I think when we talk about coir as well, um, you know, I, I'm learning that there are more sustainable versions of coir or roots to coir than we used to have. Um, and I'm grateful for that. But we are so far back down the queue for coir. When you look at soft fruit and the amount of coir that they need, I know they're saying that there might be enough available, but soft fruit are always going to take priority over ornamentals because it's the food chain. But I think when we talk about the values of horticulture, it's not just financial, it's not just environmental. I saw a documentary on the BBC that said in London alone gardens and green spaces save 300 million pounds per annum in avoided health costs and when we talked I think Mike mentioned before about how important it is that that customer who's that little bit closer to the poverty line still has access to that pick me up plant and we are it, it, essentially going to be producing an inferior product for a higher price point as we've all said we know we need to move away from peat but Doing that any faster than is is sensible could risk collapsing an industry that contributes billions to the economy and uncountless amounts to people's mental health. And yeah. when we look at when we look at the future of you know, climate change, if you've got a flooding problem, plant more trees. If you've got an overheating problem, plant more trees. You've got a carbon problem, horticulture's got the solution there. So mental health, climate change, massive global issues. investment needed is in horticulture to combat those issues and if we produce an inferior product and make people think that they're crap at gardening we're going to lose a lot of interest from a lot of people who could be the future of saving or mitigating these huge issues um so it's it's enormous water
3: is a key issue now water is a really key issue because a peat-free compost will requires a a different mindset on watering um for for the amateur guy needs to scratch the surface. The top dries out, but it can still be wet underneath. It's very easy to, yep. to keep watering and wash your your yep. fertilizer through. Um, the professional sector is going to have to look really hard at water. We in our nursery have spray irrigation from above, uh, which is great with peat. Um, with with a in a peat free world, we're going to have to look at uh, capillary action. From below but you're still going to need the spray irrigation because capillary action doesn't save your stock on a climate change hot day in august
2: Mm. so there's
3: a duplication of cost for the industry that isn't being considered
2: yeah that that would be enormous we've just built a new nursery at an enormous cost that is spray irrigation but it's my so the options for watering from underneath are are minimal Um, and as i say all our compost infrastructure is built so that we can distribute the same substrate to each machine. And these are costs we're going to have to face and we will do it. But with the margins that we operate on, the amount of businesses that will just say, no, I'm not doing it, tap out on it, I think will be more than anticipated. And especially because the ban is looking at imports as well. The amount of lavender, for example, coming in off the continent is enormous. And are UK nurseries going to be able to replace that demand? Yeah. If not, so I would worry for garden centres, Mike. No, they i are
4: really good point. Yeah. This, this, this ban on imports is a really key point because um, over 90% of our uh, growing members import something for their operation from, uh, and largely from the continent of the likes of the Netherlands. Uh, Europe are far behind the UK in, in looking at peat uh, for a ban and therefore their, their supply of products, typically uh, smaller, smaller, younger products, will not be peat-free and therefore likely to be banned uh, this 2026 date that would be hugely detrimental to, to UK growers and will undoubtedly see um, a restriction in the market, what can and can't be grown here in the, in the thousands of species and plant types available um, and it, it may well see empty, empty shelves in garden centres and plant
1: rationing as a result. I, th- I think there is a lack of understanding uh, from DEFRA as to how, how much is imported. I mean, we, we discovered that from uh, the uh, plant health uh, challenges of a couple of years ago as to, as to how many inspectors were needed for plant stock coming in i'm all in favor of british grown stock that's what we sell in the main but obviously we import too but uh the uh, but the challenge the the then the pressures again on um on the whole chain of, of europe going peat free because they won't want to have a mixture of peat-based and peat-free in the nursery, that just gets very, very difficult. Um, so uh, that will, again, put further pressure on and, and um, again, knocking the end user, the amateur gardener, stopping them gardening. And, you know, we, going back to Nat's point about the, the health benefits, you know, in COVID, gardening was an absolute saviour uh, of big chunks of society stuck at home three and a half million new gardeners because they found something really um, useful to do that was good, filled up their time, great for their physical health. We all know how good it is for your mental health, but also it's environmentally a positive thing to do uh, as well. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the thin ice that we, are, um, that we are traveling across at the moment and if this is brought in too quickly. Um, those high well, let, let me let me let me put some numbers on that for you
3: in our case. Of our turnover, we import probably thirty percent per year of our sales turnover. The plants are imported, and we we take them in in the autumn and we pot them on and then we'll sell them through this through the year. Our suppliers are simply not set up. our suppliers in the Netherlands and France are not set up to supply peat free by 2026. And we will not be able to source that 30% and in the current timescale and in the current availability of material, we will not be able to replace that by our own propagation. So that has an immediate impact on what we can sell and what is available to the market. And that's just us, that's just one nursery. And I'm sure everybody else will
4: be in exactly the same position. So, so the HDA, yeah. H- yeah, just to highlight that, absolutely. The HDA H- has done some number crunching. And if the, the ban date for professional growers goes from 2030 to 2026, that will mean the, the sector in the UK will likely produce around 100 million less trees in, and plants in 2027. OK, and but the saving on the peatlands would be the equivalent of uh, the carbon dioxide absorbed by half a million trees in that time. So even looking at it logically for bringing that date forward four years, it, it doesn't stack up at all um, for, for the carbon absorption uh, quality. So not only are we damaging, uh, a, a green UK industry, which provides so much to so many people, um, supports nearly 700,000 jobs across the UK, contributes 6.3 billion plus to the treasury every year in uh, in, uh, tax revenue but actually if if you take the number of trees lost compared to what you'll save from the peatlands in that four-year period it doesn't stack up so what what the hda is sort of saying is it was hoping that defra will and, and the wider government and including the scottish government will will listen to these arguments and, and 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 work closely and carefully with the industry to be able to um you know to to, to do a genuine sustainable roadmap. To transition to 100% peat-free in in 2030, and and we've seen a number of questions from MPs who we've been speaking to uh, recently in in uh, the House of Parliament. uh, Wendy Chamberlain MP, Peter Dowd MP, um, who've been asking some really good questions of DEFRA and and talking with them about, you know, where's this supply going to come from of peat-free alternatives, Um, and and the DEFRA ministers have promised to to meet with the HTA. Otherwise, if the if the narrative is is quite simply, we've got to end using peat tomorrow, as perhaps some NGOs would, would, would have people, uh, believe, um, that, that's, that's deeply damaging and, and, and dangerous actually to, to all the, all, all the benefits of the gardening industry in the UK.
2: We as an industry need to pull together from a PR point of view on two things. One, trying to get a way that people read past the NGO headline. Um, and I think we also need a PR campaign on, um, re-educating the consumer and i think this is something the industry needs to pull together on and almost have like a, like the, they have the wool board um for for wool we almost need like a, a an entity that can promote and um share the the virtues of what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve and why it's so important we're allowed the time
0: let's just have a um a quick discussion about the alternatives to peat then so we we we've talked about why we want to reduce peat. As an industry, we are behind that. But looking at these alternatives to peat, actually, from a sustainability point of view, importing them from the other side of the world, the increase in water and fertilizer. Let's talk about the balance of that and the reduction in peat and how we're actually going to still continue on that journey as a sustainable industry, but re- reduce the amount of peat that we use.
1: Well, this I think is where you know the t- time is really important because there are some potential. Materials out there, but they need a lot more time to work out whether they're good. I mean, digestates from you know biogas plants, but it's huge challenges with those, and and they can be used partially. My understanding as um, as a as a, uh, as a sort of a filler in some compost, but there's huge challenges with getting them to be used as a. As a complete alternative to peat, um there's you know g- green waste as well, but I've got a bag that was just been dumped on my desk this morning, which is uh, a coir green waste mix uh, but it's also full of shreddings of plastic um, and so there's there's huge issues there with with uh, councils making sure that the green waste we're getting is actually is green waste and not just Half half of someone's uh, rubbish bin as as well, um, and, and that's going to take quite a bit of legislation to clean all that up, and then time to get the trialing done properly. And my huge worry is how quickly some of these materials are being decided that they could be an alternative without the proper trial times to to get them properly and consistently in the market. Fundamentally, we need stable quality material
2: and consistent. Um,
3: consistent and in the amateur sector we can use and we are using some of these other materials as filler in an amateur compost and we have to accept that there will be a degree of variability and you know so and so may lose their tomatoes or their broad beans may not germinate this year that is simply where we will be with these other materials Um, There is a role for green compost. There is a role potentially for digestate, although I have some profound concerns about the the stability of that product. Um, There is a role for wood-based products, although there is a technical limit to it. But am I going to grow professionally in green compost, high green compost content mixes or any green compost content? No. Am I going to put digestate in a professional compost? Absolutely not. We've, as I've said, we can make a very good peat-free compost and many members of the industry are. The question is not, can we do it? The question is, can we get enough materials to do it consistently? And within the current timescale, no. And that is not me being difficult about wanting to continue to use peat. That's simply me being realistic about what is available in the marketplace at the moment.
2: The pandemic shows that when the supply chain is stretched, it, comprom- it undermines the quality of the material put out there, which undermines the public trust in the product. Um, I think
3: that's absolutely right. And we we all know that we were absolutely stretched beyond the limit during the pandemic. And we just could not get hold of the raw materials we needed to, and less good quality materials were being bagged than, than we would have liked. But I, I can already see this year, because peat-free is so much bigger part of the market, and the market is doing this job, but Pete Varee is so much bigger part of the market that raw material supply is under pressure. And we've got, as matters stand for the retail sector, we've got one more year. And if the professional sector ban were 2026, and we're having to supply professional growers with compost that they're growing in to sell from that point onwards, then i truly believe there will be a shortage of material in the marketplace i do not believe it is possible for the market to cope
1: and then again with that uh, and us uh, trying to um help our amateur gardeners uh, to garden is that you, you with it, you know generally going back to peat-based compost you could give the same advice no matter what the brand was but now you're giving advice about 20 different mixes that all needs slightly different or sometimes considerably different uh, treatment
2: but also through um, the
1: season mike you know your your material yeah, well, yeah, it's really yeah, the same material is not the
3: same material between january and and june no,
2: in the same batch. We've had bales in the same batch that have performed completely differently. Um, I think part of that's the infrastructure coming into play at the the manufacturers, but that's why I shouted the word consistency out before. Because if we're we're on a level playing field and we know what we're dealing with, we can deal with it. But at the moment, every bag you open, whether it's one week or the next, or even in the same batch is a different ball game.
1: It is, and I guess with the green waste is, uh, you know, green, green waste that's collected at this time of year, will be very different to green waste that's collected um, in uh, October, November. So therefore, and it comes into the to the chain at different times. Uh, so therefore, you know, it's just not the same we, thing. We, we we are attempting to further mature and mix
3: our products before right. they are bagged. We don't just have them in and bag them. If we can help it, we try and hold them. But I think what you need to think about as well, which isn't often thought about, is the the manufacturing infrastructure implications of this. We used to have a big pile of peat, which we bulldozed, and we used to bulldoze it into a big pile in the autumn, and we used to take that peat out of that pile and bag it, and it was the same. What what you... you now need is a a much bigger footprint of area because storing peat-free is space hungry. You can't build big piles of it because it catches fire. You have to keep turning it. Um, It it operates differently through the factory, has different flow characteristics. We bag materially slower on peat-free. And the other thing, because it's active, you simply can't follow the old model where come October and November, you would start bagging and you would lay that stock down and it would be high-peat high peat content compost and it would still grow April, May, June, no problem at all. We have to manufacture on a much more just-in-time basis. Yep. And it puts a huge amount of pressure on the manufacturing infrastructure. It's not simply a case of, well, why haven't you stopped using peat then? There's all these different reasons for it. And as I say, I don't want anybody to think that we're not committed to eliminating peat. We are. The time scale is the problem
4: yeah and then and then you're I think not just talking about r and d there you're talking about supply chains as well which which of course yeah. takes a lot of time to, to establish to be able to supply that so
3: very yeah. so and, and rapid oh. and we're competing with for wood but products for example we're competing with the biomass industry which is subsidized
4: yeah yeah exactly and,
3: and, you know there is a finite amount of material out there that different different industries and different countries frankly are competing for
4: yeah and so Ben, would you welcome, um, and and you Nat, would would you welcome support from the government in regards to grants for trialing peat-free in the future with the different mixes and 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 where it could go in, and establishing these supply chains?
2: It absolutely has to be. Um, we in in the machinery required to make the change as well. You know, as as I say, nurseries are a low-margin industry and we can't make these you know if we had to get a new transplanting machine for example we'd be looking at a quarter of a million pound just to change a machine to deal with a rougher substrate which is effectively what we're going to get um you know that there's there's millions and millions of pounds on any nursery that you would have to put into and we, we can make you know we're not af- afraid of investing but it we need to be allowed the time or offered the support To make those changes because they are completely game changing, and we want to do them. And I know we keep saying that, but we really, really do want to move away from peat. But it has to happen at a a sustainable speed, and it has to be with a realistic um, um, alternative that is tested, and we know isn't just out of the frying pan into the fire. So, do you think as
0: an industry we're actually being penalised a little bit here for being environmental horticulture? Because if there was any, if this was going if this was just being grown in food, or this was pharmaceuticals, or something, we would have to have a much longer research and development period. We'd have to trial it. Do you think that actually, as an industry, we we should be given the same considerations as a lot would, of others would?
2: I would argue that it is medicine. You know, not in the you're going to ingest it kind of way most of the time, but in in the mental health and the physical <laughs> health benefits. It, it's med, It's prescribed by the NHS. You know, horticulture and green spaces are. prescribed by the NHS and yeah the the pecking order for our access to these materials as Mike and Ben have alluded to um, doesn't take into consideration the enormous role that what we do plays in the country's well-being.
3: And and if there was pharmaceuticals that we were manufacturing and we were using peat in it it would be regarded as essential and a different view would be taken and they would say this is essential the the carbon emissions that come from that of tiny in comparison to other sectors like transport and therefore it is not a key target for reduction but because it is not viewed as essential by government it's it's and by by maybe society as a whole it maybe it's undervalued horticulture, but because of that. there is extra pressure on this industry that we're not seeing on transport for example and can i return to the point that nat was making about investment for example if we're going to replace um stock bought in from the continent then there is an investment cycle around extra propagation capacity infrastructure, infrastructure extra staff that we need to invest in to do that and and that simply cannot be done in the time scale and when you are trialing peat-free mixes, because of growing seasons, you can only have so many trials in a season. You get, you get maybe two, maybe three, depends on when you start and finish and what you're trying to achieve. But you can't force this all year. You have to work with the seasons. And I, I really can't stress enough that we are committed to doing this. And I thought 2030 was a fair timescale to do it in. Yeah. I absolutely do not think 2026 is remotely fair or realistic no
1: my, my view was 2030 is challenging but we'd find a way yeah 2026 is oh my god because the knock-on effect in both directions so by 2026 2024 we will have sorted out the amateur gardening bit and you know we we're already there way ahead of the game on that i think and you look at the numbers uh, you know the amount of Peak being sold now is tiny by comparison to two years ago so it's happening yeah, but, already but that that 30% in a bag or 20% or whatever it is
3: makes a huge difference because it yep, makes that yep. compost grow and and yep. you've got yep. to replace it with something that isn't available frankly at the moment and you know what we really need is 2024 to happen a couple of years to see what happens from yep. that the government yep. to be able to look at the impact and us as an industry to look at the impact on not just sales but on actual performance out there in the marketplace and then to, to to be able to look at 2030 for the professional sector to try and do them but it's experimenting with professional horticulture which is just wrong
2: yeah yeah there's no two ways about it that we will lose our range of plants from this we will lose yep. key key components in a range of plants you know things like we're really struggling with coa, even at, at at 60% reduced um margarites are another, you know, the, there's key stalwart plants that will be lost from the market because of this. And if that's well, a consequence that, that has to happen, yeah. it has to happen. But if we had a bit longer, might we be able to
3: Ericaceous is in real trouble because there is there is ericaceous peat-free compost available, but it is a tiny amount, and the whole ericaceous sector is potentially in trouble because. The consumer will not be able to buy a suitable compost or enough suitable compost to grow it in yeah
4: this, this is a key point because it's it's absolutely the acidic sort of loving plants and, and also one we haven't mentioned is house plants as well um, you know which is becoming is more popular than ever and and this this will be a big knock-on effect but certainly rhododendrons you know azaleas those um t- types of, of plants will struggle without peat at the moment
1: House plants is an introductory thing as well. It introduces yeah. people to horticulture, and you take that away uh, and you start to lose people going into gardening at all. And it's
3: the same point. We can make a good peat free house plant compost, we just yeah. can't make enough of it. Okay. And actually, the professional sector begins to lose their customers if people buy things that then die.
2: Yeah. And we, we can prop them up to the point of dispatch. I'm fairly confident that, you know, with the, the resources and this team that we have here, we can prop up a plant so that it looks nearly as good on the shelf. But we're doing the same as you, Ben. We're loading everything with control release. Um, even the plants we are producing for the cheaper markets are loaded with control release to give people a chance. Um, but yeah. the long short of it is they're going to not get the garden performance that they're expecting and they're probably going to blame themselves.
0: So, yeah. in, in in summary... As an industry, we are highly committed to this target that the government has, has put on us. We want to reduce the amount of peat, but we want yep. to do it properly. We want to make sure what we're we're replacing it with is right, is best for us as an industry, as businesses throughout the supply chain and for the end consumer as well. And that requires time, money, support and communication both back up towards the government, uh, DEFRA, and also down to the end consumer so that everyone is fully aware of really what's involved and, and what the changes need to be.
3: Correct. Correct, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and, and that commitment is, is, is throughout the industry, and we've come an awfully long way. But the ri- rushing now has the risk of undermining a lot of that progress.
4: Uh, three words, Alex, time and availability. I think that that's the key. And, and both of them are largely in DEFRA's gift and Scotland, yeah. Scottish Government's gift as well.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you all very much for agreeing to be our guest today on Hort Talk. You've been listening to Hort Talk, episode 13, an HGA podcast. I look forward to welcoming you on the next episode, which is being recorded live from the National Plants Show in June. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.